Uh, our first speaker um, is um, oops. first speaker is Dr. Nicole uh, Klatt, who comes to us from the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, she's a well-known uh, immunologist uh, and expert in the microbiome and how it affects HIV. And she will be speaking to us on um, the good, the bad, and the ugly of bugs in health. Thank you so much uh, to Donna and Ron and the whole organizing committee. It's really an honor to be here. Um, and like he said, I'll be talking about the microbiome. So I am more on the basic research side of things, working on um, microbiome and um, the health implications in HIV and other diseases. So we're going to go through, and I, sorry, I've um, served as a consultant for Takeda and Ceres. Um, goes. But today we are going to go through how the microbiome contributes to HIV transmission and disease. And I'm going to give you a brief background on what the microbiome is to make sure we're all on the same page as to um, exactly what the microbiome is and how it might contribute to health. Um, do I just go through? Sorry, I'm getting weird slides here. Okay, let's go to the slides. I'm sorry. That's, we're seeing two different things. Um, <laughs> So, so we're going to start in, with uh, polling questions, and of course I haven't told you any of this yet, so this is just more to get a background on where you're at starting the presentation and, um, and not expect you to know the answers to this per se. So uh, the first question is, what feature of the vaginal microbiome is associated with health and decreased HIV transmission? So this would be something that is a good feature of the vaginal microbiome, and this could be one, increased diversity two, high inflammation, three, decreased diversity, or four, excess mu mucus. This is new, so you're learning with us here. <laughs> it's coming. Well, we'll continue on, and then if that, you can pull it up at some point if it, if it comes up. So. First, I'm going to talk about HIV pathogenesis, and I, I think everyone in this room probably knows this is not new information to you, but just to remind everybody why it's so important that we're still studying HIV disease, um, even in the context of antiretroviral therapy. So of course, we know individuals must remain on ART indefinitely, um, and there's still non increased non-AIDS morbidities and mortality, um, even in the context of antiretroviral therapy. So, and, and we know life expectancy is reduced despite ART. So there's several things that might contribute to this, the HIV reservoir, including anatomic sanctuaries and persistent integrated provirus, as well as persistent immune activation and mucosal dysfunction that all contribute to morbidities and mortality. Um, did you want to pull up the answer now? 
Okay, sorry. We'll take a moment and go back to the polling. Scroll back. Okay, so 68% said increased diversity, which we'll, we'll go back to momentarily, which is a very good guess because in the context of the gastrointestinal tract, it would be increased diversity. So I will um, complete, uh, I'll do a, um, break my own, but it's, it's actually decreased diversity. It's the opposite in the vagina. So, but I'll, I'll teach you more about that momentarily. And then we can actually go back, because there's, um, and then we'll do the other question now. So, and this is gonna be on the pathogenesis side. I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping around. I swear we'll get it all back and going once we get through this. Um, so, HIV altered microbiota can increase neutrophil accumulation in the gut by what mechanism? So one, attaching to blood neutrophils. Two, decreasing apoptosis of neutrophils and increasing survival. Three, binding to viruses. Or four, developing a biofilm. And again, not expected to know the answer to this right now, so hopefully by the end of my presentation you will. Excellent job. So the actual answer here is decreasing apoptosis and increasing survival. And again, I'll teach you more about that, but I'm very impressed that there was 34% that actually got that right for this one. Okay, so let's go back to our talk. <laughs> so sorry about the technical um, issues there, but hopefully we have that all worked out now for the rest of the day. So thank you, Scott, for your help with that. Okay, so as I said, we have increased morbidities and mortality, and one of the important things is that these increased morbidities and mortality in HIV infection are cons consistently associated with inflammation, and this inflammation is often attributed to mucosal dysfunction. So whether this is gut epithelial barrier dysfunction, innate immune activation attributed to microbial translocation, um, inflammatory and coagulation biomarkers that are often associated with gut dysfunction such as soluble CD14, which is associated with microbial translocation. Um, LPS levels, also um, this is lipopolysaccharide associated with microbial translocation. Um, but, but these biomarkers that across the entire world, um, despite antiretroviral therapy or not, are consistently associated with increased mortality in HIV infection, can all be attributed back to mucosal dysfunction in one way or another. So we're very interested in the mechanisms of this mucosal dysfunction in HIV infection. So in both transmission and in pathogenesis, there's these, we've highlighted three areas of mucosal dysfunction that contribute to both of these aspects of HIV infection. So this includes barrier damage, so epithelial barrier damage, inflammation, and altered microbiome. And so we'll talk about all three of these today, and we're going to start with pathogenesis and talk about um, how, how these mucosal dysfunctions can contribute to pathogenesis, and then we're going to go um, backtrack to transmission towards the end. Okay, so um, just to give you an overview of what the microbiome is, make sure we're all on the same page. So the microbiome has gotten very hot in the last 10 years. Um, a lot of this is because for years we couldn't actually identify the microbiome, but now we have 
the sequencing skills to be able to get in there and really understand um, these different bacterial species and um, different organisms better. So just to define the microbiome, so we often kind of refer to the microbiome like bacteria, which it does include bacteria, and the majority of the microbiome is bacteria. But just to remind you, it does include other things like viruses, fungi, protists, archaea. Um, and when we refer to microbiome, it's not just the actual microorganisms, but it's the gene products and functional products and metabolites that they make as well. So the microbiome is very important for making different things like vitamins, short-chain fatty acids. Um, they, they are extremely um, crucial in metabolizing the food we eat, the drugs we take. Um, there's 10 to 100 trillion microorganisms per person. Um, that's really hard to actually wrap your mind around what 100 trillion is, and I don't have time to give this really good example of what it is, but suffice it to say that it's a bigger number than we can really wrap our heads around. Um, and if you think of how small a bacteria is, you have at least as many bacteria cells in your body as human cells, and this makes up about 10 pounds of the average adult body is actually bacteria. So um, fun fact to tell your friends later. Um, and then we talk about dysbiosis a lot, and I'm going to talk about dysbiosis quite a bit today. So dysbiosis is when you have an imbalance in this microbial community. So when you have alterations to your microbiome, and this can then impact health and disease. And this can be either a change in the actual bacteria or viruses or microorganisms that are there, so it can actually be a change in the relative abundance of, of a microbe, or this can be actually a functional change. So now your bacteria or your virus is doing something differently than it was before. Am I pointing this to change? Okay. So um, I also want to highlight there's many microbiomes. So we mostly think about the GI tract microbiome because this is your largest microbiome. So the majority of the bacteria in your body are in your gut. But virtually every site of the body, especially mucosal sites, have a microbiome. And that these are heavily associated with disease. So you have an oral microbiome. Oral microbiome is very much associated with um, oral diseases like gingivitis and periodontal diseases and has been attributed um, to disease and inflammation, HIV pathogenesis. There's a lung microbiome, and when you have dysbiosis there, it's associated with things like lung cancer, COPD, asthma, et cetera. There's a skin microbiome that's very important for things like acne, allergies, psoriasis, dermatitis. Um, and then there's a female reproductive tract and a male reproductive tract microbiome. Um, and so here it just shows the vaginal, and we're going to go back to that at the end of the talk. Um, but the vaginal microbiome dysbiosis is associated with vaginosis, increased HIV transmission, STIs, preterm birth. Um, and then we're going to start with the gut microbiome dysbiosis. And again, this is by far the biggest studied and your biggest microbiome in the body um, has been associated with virtually every disease that it's ever been measured against. Um, and this is from colorectal cancers, inflammatory bowel disease, um, autoimmunities, of course, C. diff infection, HIV pathogenesis. And then there's also a very important gut-brain axis that's now being studied as well, where actually it's looking like the gut microbiome can modulate things in the CNS and has been now attributed to things like autism and um, um, diff different neurogenitive disorders. So I'm going to give you the big picture of what's happening in HIV infection and what, what the dysbiosis is we see. Um, so basically, again, so dysbiosis is when we have an altered microbiome. So what it, this is what is consistently seen in HIV infection is that you have an increase in bad bacteria and a decrease in good bacteria. So the increase in Prevotella and proteobacteria, this is important. Prevotella are highly inflammatory bacteria, so they have a very long LPS chain that can um, induce TLR stimulation and, and gets very inflammatory, so it's important that those are increased. Prevotella are associated with a lot of diseases, like inflammatory bowel disease and, and different cancers. Um, 
Proteobacteria then, it's very important that these are increased because proteobacteria, first of all, it contain many opportunistic pathogens. So Salmonella and E. coli are two examples of proteobacteria. Um, and also because proteobacteria tend to be adherent, they can actually grab onto that mucosal lining. And when the bacteria get across, when we talk about microbial translocation, the vast majority of microbes that actually cross up at the other barrier and get into systemic periphery are proteobacteria. So the fact that these two um, inflammatory and adherent bugs are increased can be very bad for mucosal health and um, overall inflammation. And then you lose good bugs. So we have a decrease in firmicutes. So firmicutes tend to be our probiotics. So probiotics are beneficial um, microorganisms. So firmicutes include lactobacillus, which we'll talk a lot about today. Um, also, you have a decrease in bacteroides, and the reason this is important is because bacteroides make things like short-chain fatty acids. That's very important for mucosal health. I do want to point out something very important in this gut dysbiosis, though, and that is that while many studies have attributed this dysbiosis to HIV infection, there's now new data coming out. Roger Paredes um, at Arce Kasha in Barcelona first showed this, and Colleen Kelly's shown some, and, and there's more data coming out now that shows that sexual preference might induce dysbiosis on its own. So when you look in the context of uninfected MSMs, there is an increase in dysbiosis, and so we're trying to now figure out how much of the dysbiosis and HIV infection actually comes from infection itself versus was pre-existing and might have contributed to transmission. And this is all being sorted out now, hopefully. So um, jumping into more on the, on the data side with, after the background. So um, of course, we know that gut epithelial barrier and systemic inflammation um, are prominent during chronic infection. And there was a very nice study by Peter Hunt's group in Masamsuk. Um, showing that one potential mechanism of mucosal dysfunction during HIV infection is increased neutrophils in the GI tract. And so, here's my pointer. They showed here that um, they're using myeloperoxidase to identify neutrophils, and in an uninfected individual in the colon, you have very little myeloperoxidase. An infected person, you of course have um, much more, and then this is um, significant um, in increase in the myeloperoxidase. And so, we got very interested in this mechanism because, of course, we also know there's gut damage, which is shown here, this epithelial barrier um, damage where you have focal breaches. And uh, neutrophils, if, if they accumulate and you have too many, they're, they're very good at clearing pathogens, but you want them to be very short-lived. So neutrophils typically only live for a couple hours, um, at most a day or two, and then they clear out because all they do is sit and make inflammatory pro um, products and proteases that can actually cause tissue damage if they remain. So we went back and we took a cohort of um, people from multiple sites looking at rectosigmoidoscopy or colonoscopy biopsies to actually go in and measure specifically how many neutrophils. So rather than um, use MPO, which is not entirely specific, can also get monocytes. We also wanted to measure by flow cytometry to understand neutrophils. And in fact, that we confirmed their study that when we specifically measure neutrophils by flow cytometry, you have a significant increase in the neutrophils in the colon of HIV-infected people, um, and these are all art-suppressed. So we wanted to understand the mechanism underlying this and hypothesized that you have um, decreased apoptosis. So apoptosis, of course, is when they go into cell death, and that's a mechanism of clearance, so then they're not accumulating and causing tissue damage. And so we measured active caspase 3, which is a marker of um, apoptosis. And what you can see here is that in HIV uninfected individuals, the vast majority of neutrophils are in this apoptosis cycle where you'd want them to be because, again, we want them short-lived. But in the context of HIV infection, their apoptosis is much reduced. 
So we wanted to understand the mechanism. Why are these, in the, and this is all in the gut, by the way. So, so why are these neutrophils coming in, and why are they not apoptosing like they should be, which would then lead back to this accumulation like Peter Hunt's group sh um, showed. So what we did was we actually measured the uh, microbiome of these individuals, and then we took the, so remember I told you that Parvatella are, are these highly inflammatory bugs, whereas Lactobacillus is one of the good ones, the Firmicutes, that's decreased. And what we saw is when we actually looked at the survival of neutrophils compared to the, um, the abundance of these different bugs, you have an increase in Prevotella, and this is associated with an increase of the neutrophil survival. However, when you look at the lactobacillus, when you have loss of lactobacillus, this is then associated with loss of, um, or decreased death of the, decreased survival of neutrophils, sorry. So these data indicate that potentially this dysbiosis and in HIV infection might be driving this neutrophil accumulation and survival, and we think this could be a possible mechanism underlying this gut dysfunction is constantly having these neutrophils in the GI tract um, that aren't dying like they should be. So um, to conclude this part, just a quick story giving you an example of how neutrophils are increased in the GI of treated HIV infection. It's associated with new, decreased neutrophil apoptosis, which again, we think that the, the, survive, the increased survival or lack of death of these neutrophils is the mechanism underlying accumulation. Um, and the HIV-altered mucosal bacteria differentially affect the neutrophil apoptosis, whereas you have the good bacteria that's lost in HIV, like lactobacillus, that can drive um, the neutrophil death versus the increased Prevotella that is associated then with the increased neutrophil survival. So um, we're still working on this study and um, hopefully publishing it soon, but we're trying to further understand how the neutrophils contribute to the HIV pathogenesis and barrier damage, um, and then try to understand how we could actually target this to, to change it, whether from a microbiome perspective or an immunology perspective. Um, so with that, I'm gonna go to the second part of the talk and talk more about the transmission side of HIV infection. So hopefully I showed you um, there that we can have barrier damage that's associated with inflammation from the neutrophils and the altered microbiome can probably drive it. And so now we're gonna go back to the transmission side and actually talk about the female reproductive tract and how this, um, all, how these different mechanisms play a role. I'm sorry, it comes up kind of fuzzy there. Um, so, so just a background, and I, I know especially probably people in this room think probably mostly about um, men being infected with HIV infection as that's the driving force um, locally and, and in the U.S. But just to remind you too that women make up half the infections of HIV. Um, in Sub-Saharan Sub Africa in particular, you have two times as many women in the age range of 15 to 24 than men that are getting infected. Um, this is a highly vulnerable group um, as they don't have the sexual negotiation rights um, in, in places where you have the highest infection. And there's of course things like pregnancy and mother-to-child transmission that um, make things more complicated and can increase um, HIV infections as well. Um, so again, we're, we're trying to understand the biological mechanisms leading to HIV acquisition in women. Um, so this, just, this little cartoon here highlights some of the putative mechanisms underlying HIV transmission that, and things that have been associated with HIV transmission through the female reproductive tract. So in a healthy female reproductive tract, in a healthy vagina, you have an intact squamous epithelium, homeostatic cells and cytokines, and hopefully a very non-diverse lactobacillus dominant microbiome, which we will talk more about. Um, but in the context of HIV infection, an altered, HIV, or an altered microbiome, damage again, again to the barrier like we talked about, and um, same as pathogenesis, and again, increased inflammation, increased HIV target cells have all been associated with increased HIV transmission. 
Um, today we're going to focus on the altered microbiome. So um, the, just to orient you how we look at the microbiome, um, so you've probably seen these plots before, and I just want to make sure that you understand how we read these plots if you're not like me and look at them every single day. Um, so each line represents one woman. So the, these are data from the Fresh Cohort, Doug Kwan's group um, at the Raygon, um, runs this Fresh Cohort in South Africa, and this is CVL samples, so cervical vaginal lavages, and, um, and where they did 16-SR RNA sequencing, and now they're showing data, so every line represents one woman, and each color represents different bacteria taxa. So uh, and then they group them out into these community-type groups that, and, and there's several ways to group these things, and so some people, I'm going to show you shortly, if we just do two groups, you can do four groups, some people do six groups. Um, but the point is, is that the optimal vaginal microbiome is not going to be diverse. It's going to be lactobacillus. So lactobacillus ma makes lactic acid in the vagina, and that lactic acid keeps that pH very low, which is very healthy for the vagina and blocking STI infection. Um, and so what you can see is that when you have the lactobacillus in the green or yellow here, it's, you very rarely have other bugs. But then you get more diverse as it goes through this way, and this is what's going to be considered vaginal dysbiosis or um, bacterial vaginosis. So bacterial vaginosis is the clinical diagnosis of microbiome dysbiosis, per se. Um, it's the most common cause of vaginitis, including um, the symptoms include inflammation, discharge, and discomfort. Um, typically associated with loss of lactobacillus species and increased diversity of the vaginal microbiome. So again, we have the opposite. So people tend to talk about the gut microbiome being healthy with more diversity, but it's the opposite in the vagina. You want less diversity for health. Um, it's clinically diagnosed with this Nugent scoring with a 0 to 10 um, that includes this wet mount where um, they look at morphology. So this is going to be a Nugent score of 0. So this will be a lactobacillus dominant. You only have lactobacillus not a lot of cells, but in a Nugent of 7 to 10, which will be a BV positive, you have um, different morphologies, so, so you start losing that lactobacillus, you get more cocci, and then um, you get these big clue cells. Um, importantly, antibiotic treatment that is used for BV is not effective. There's frequent recurrence, and we'll talk about this at the end. Uh, but I want to point something out that I think is a very important factor with bacterial vaginosis is that while people tend to use clinical um, BV as a diagnosis of this vaginal dysbiosis, uh, they are not mutually inclusive. So this is shown really nicely. These are cervical vaginal lavages from the Miami Weiss cohort. And um, we did 16SR RNA sequencing. So again, just to remind you, that when you have the one color, this is the healthy, like, lactobacillus, um, whereas when you see these um, multicolor um, lines, and again, these are one bar represents one woman, and then this is the highly diverse that we've seen. So now we're going to break it out into Nugent score. So over here you have Nugent 7 to 10, and these are going to be our positive BV diagnosis. And you can see that most of the women who have a positive BV diagnosis also have this high diversity of vaginal dysbiosis, although there's two women that actually have lactobacillus dominance, and so treating them with antibiotics wouldn't do anything because they don't have, you want them to keep that. So, so it's not necessary. you have a, a small percentage of the women that you're not, um, that don't have vaginal dysbiosis, but are BV positive. When we look at this intermediate, so these women would actually be considered BV negative in this intermediate four to six. They would not be given treatment, um, most likely. And what you can see is the vast majority of these women actually do have dysbiosis and probably would need a treatment. And then you go down to Nugent zero to three, so these women would definitely be considered negative, definitely wouldn't be given treatment, but you can see that several of these women do have dysbiosis. 
So the point is, is that while BV is definitely a clinical indication of um, something wrong and having a, a um, vaginal discomfort, it is not necessarily representative of having vaginal dysbiosis. And so this gets really important when we start thinking about therapeutic approaches and, and how we're diagnosing women that actually need a different intervention um, than others. So uh, vaginal dysbiosis and BV um, have both been shown to increase HIV infection risk. So again, with this fresh cohort with the Quans group, um, they showed, so the CT1 is this um, highly lactobacillus group down here where they had no infections in the CT1 group, but the number of infections in women went up as the diversity went up of the vaginal microbiome in the women. And then a huge meta-analysis took several studies that had looked at bacterial vaginosis worldwide and showed that actually women who had um, bacterial vaginosis had a 60% increased risk of HIV transmission. And this is um, actually not just important for women with BV. So a man sleeping with a woman with BV actually has a threefold higher chance of getting um, HIV infected as well. So this also affects men who have a BV positive partner. And then um, it also affects mother to child transmission, where, where uh, mother to child transmission is higher in women with BV. Um, so we started thinking of BV and the vaginal microbiome and PrEP. So PrEP has been very effective in men. Most clinical trials of PrEP and MSM have shown an 80 to 90% effectiveness. This is not the case in women. When we look at the clinical trials of women um, and, and PrEP, what you see is that you have this variability from negative 50% up to 75%. And the highest efficacy was in married partners, um, which you would expect higher efficacy. But you can see that this is highly variable and not very good efficacy in, whoops, I, I think I hit that maybe in a timer. Um, and, and, and so we really wanted to understand why. So this is mostly attributed to adherence, which didn't make much sense because adherence is typically higher in women than men. Um, and so it's, we wanted to understand, are there biological mechanisms that underlie this altered efficacy? And what I'm going to talk about here is the Caprisa 004 clinical trial of coital tenofovir gel. So women were given a tenofovir gel or a placebo gel and asked to use it pre or post coitus. Um, this was published uh, back in 2010 in Science, and the overall efficacy of the entire trial is 39%. So what we did is we took CVLs from the women in this trial, from 688 women in this trial, and we, um, in partner with Adam Bergener, um, we looked at the microbiome by mass spectrometry. And again, so now because we have so many women, you don't see those individual nice lines. But what you can see is, again, you get this very non-diverse group. This is all the oranges, lactobacillus or you get this more um, diverse group. And so um, for power reasons, we split this now into two. So you have the less than 50% lactobacillus, which is gonna be your highly diverse kind of vaginal dysbiosis group versus 50, over 50% lactobacillus, which is gonna be our optimal um, kind of more healthy group. And then what we did is we took women and we looked at the efficacy based on microbiome. So we, instead of just looking at overall efficacy, we looked at women who have a lactobacillus dominance or not. And what was absolutely amazing is that the women who had lactobacillus dominance had a much higher efficacy of the, of the tenofovir gel. So now your efficacy is 61%. But the women who did not have lactobacillus dominance, who had the increased diversity in their vaginal microbiota, actually had much less efficacy. So they only had 18% efficacy. So this was really incredible that actually the vaginal microbiota was dictating how efficacious the drug was. 
So we really want to understand the biological mechanisms under this. And so um, in my lab, we actually think a lot about pharmacodynamics of drugs and relative to uh, the microbiota. And so we hypothesized that potentially the tenofovir is actually being metabolized. So I told you in the beginning, the bacteria are very important for metabolizing um, multiple things. And that is their job. The bacteria's job is to sit there and metabolize and make good metabolites and um, vitamins and, and have all these products that, that contribute to your health. And they, um, bacteria have many, many enzymes. It's like SIP proteins that are very important for drug metabolism. So we hypothesized that maybe they were actually metabolizing the drug. So now I'm going to show you, and this is kind of, um, th this was the follow-up. Actually, I'm going to show you newer data than what we, what we actually published in the science paper because I think it's um, even more compelling. But so what we did was we took um, women from, again, the, the WISE cohort in Miami who are BV negative or positive, um, and then we looked at drug metabolism drug metabolism of the tenofovir relative to the microbial communities that we measure by 16S. So here, again, I'm showing you, um, and hopefully you know how to look at these now, or how, here we have the diverse and here we don't. And the way these are now ordered is by tenofovir degradation rate. So how much tenofovir is degraded by the bacteria versus what the bacteria looks like. And what you can clearly see is that when you have very little tenofovir degradation, you have very little diversity, and it's all lactobacillus. And as the tenofovir degradation increases, the diversity increases too. We can quantify this. So now we're looking at pharmacologically active tenofovir diphosphate inside the um, cells. And what you can see is that if you have over 50% lactobacillus, you have a much higher rate of your pharmacologically active tenofovir diphosphate compared to if you have this high diversity and loss of lactobacillus, you have a much lower rate of pharmacologically active tenofovir diphosphate. And this directly correlates with your lactobacillus. So the more lactobacillus you have, the more tenofovir diphosphate you have, and the more diversity you have, the less. So, so these data indicate that these highly diverse bacterial communities have the capability of actually metabolizing the tenofovir before it can be made a pharmacologically active drug. So we looked at depivirine. So depivirine is one of the, the next generation, or not next generation drugs, but this was used in the depivirine ring trial. Um, there in Aspire in the ring trial, the, uh, the efficacy was shown anywhere between 30 and 50%, depending on what group you looked at and, and age of the woman. And um, we, we wanted to look at depivirine because this is very important. So the way that this is being um, used in these trials is being put in a ring. So this drug is going to be actively exposed to the microbiome. So um, we, again, look at depivirine degradation rate relative to how the bacterial diversity looks. And again, what you can see is similar to the tenofovir. You have very low depivirine degradation if you have lactobacillus. But as the diversity increases, you have much higher degradation. And we can look at the intracellular depivirine. This is going to be our active. So this is going to be the depivirine that's inside the target cell that's ready to protect that cell from HIV infection. And again, if you have lactobacillus, you have very high intracellular depivirine. But if you have this um, diverse communities, you have significantly lower depivirine that's going to be there and active for the cell. And again, the same thing that we saw with the tenofovir, with the pivirine, there's a significant, or a significant negative correlation between how much uh, lactobacillus and how much drug, deg drug degradation there is. So increased diversity meant increased degradation of the depivirine, whereas increased lactobacillus meant decreased degradation of depivirine. And I just want to point out, and kind of going to um, Rafi's question last night that we were discussing, is that there has been a study showing that the depivirine was not affected by, um, depivirine levels weren't affected by the microbiome. But remember I showed you the BV data that 
microbiome dysbiosis and BV might be a not mutually um, inclusive. And so that was all measured by BV. So I think that what we need to do is really understand in a larger study, because that was also a very small um, subset of, of women, I think we need to understand in a larger study um, exactly how much the vaginal dysbiosis measured by um, you know, deep sequencing is actually affecting in, in vivo. But we unfortunately do not have those samples to measure that. So finally, I want to give you some good news, though. Um, so yes, it's, it's frustrating that maybe, you know, there's now the vaginal microbiome can play a role in um, degradation of tenofovir and depivirine. But in the context of the next generation tenofovir alphenamide, or TAF, which now is being put into trials and will be talked about um, much more today, what we see is that now when we're looking at degradation, first of all, you don't see degradation. And so, of course, there is not any um, order of the, of the diversity. When you split it into groups, you see no degradation. You have, a, no matter what bacteria communities are there, we see just as much tenofovir diphosphate being made in our target cells. So this is very good news. And of course, then we have no correlation because there's no degradation. So hopefully, next generation drugs, we can start looking at this as, as a, another marker of what might improve efficacy. So there is good news there. And not every drug is metabolized by the bacteria. Um, so just to kind of recap, we have these different processes that can affect transmission and efficacy, like inflammation and barrier damage. And now we do need to consider antiretroviral drug um, metabolism as well, um, I think, in, when we're considering the most efficacious of trials. So just to conclude, dysbiosis of the vaginal bacteria is a key factor in vaginal inflammation, epithelial barrier integrity, and HIV acquisition. And dysbiotic can metabolize tenofovir, and um, sorry, I just added more slides last night, so um, it's not updated, but it can metabolize tenofovir and epivirine, but not TAF. So um, there, there's likelihood that the bacteria can um, contribute to de decreased PrEP efficacy and something, but there is hope that um, the next generation drugs might not um, have this effect. But we do, I think, need to better understand the vaginal microbiome and how to increase lactobacillus communities and prevent BV or vaginal dysbiosis, um, and especially the recurrence, so we can improve efficacy of different therapeutics. Um, there are some therapeutics coming out. So, so first of all, we do need better assessments since we, um, BV is clearly not the best assessment to measure dysbiosis because we can have effects like this without being able to clinically measure it right now. Um, the current standard of care for BV is metronidazole or flagell or clindamycin. And again, this is limited efficacy and frequent recurrence. In fact, they showed that a, it, one study showed up to 90% recurrence after a year of treatment, or a year from treatment. Um, there are, are things like probiotics, prebiotics, live biotherapeutics that um, are, are coming out. Lactin V is a good example. It's in clinical trials right now at Craig Cohen's group. Um, and, and so that's promising that maybe we can supplement that lactobacillus and improve the vaginal microbiome. Um, things like microbiome material transplants are being talked about, but not, um, so same concept, concept as fecal transplant, but doing this for the vagina. Um, and the fecal transplants, by the way, have not had great efficacy in the context of HIV either. Um, phage therapy is a new hot um, thing to think about um, and how we can regulate the microbiomes by using bacteriophages. And then gene targeting editing is kind of the next pipeline that's being um, thought about. So, with, are we back to the questions? Oh, I can look. No? So with that, I'll just end by going back to the questions and hope I taught you something here and that everybody was awake this morning. Um, so, again, we're going to go back to that first question, and I know that was 20 minutes ago, and we probably all forgot, but HIV-altered microbiota may increase, increase neutrophil accumulation in the gut by what mechanism? So one, attaching to the blood neutrophils, 
Two, decreasing apoptosis and increasing survival. Three, finding the viruses. Or four, developing a biofilm. Beautiful music. All right, 99%. You guys listened. I'm so proud. Thank you. Um, that's fantastic. So now let's go on to the next one. I'm going to put it up. All right, what feature of the vaginal microbiome is associated with health and decreased HIV transmission? So this is the vaginal microbiome. What is the good feature of a vaginal microbiome? Increased diversity, high inflammation, decreased diversity, or excess mucus? All right, okay, not as good, 97%, but still pretty darn good. So again, so, and I like this question just because I think that we, we have to remember that the vaginal microbiome is different than the gut microbiome. So gut microbiome, you want increased diversity. Vaginal microbiome, decreased diversity. You want lactobacillus. So with that, I am happy to take any questions. Thank you so much for paying great attention and obviously learning something. So um, I, I, I hope that that's been beneficial. Is this on? Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, uh, if people have questions and they'd like to ask them directly, we uh, have some microphones around the room uh, which you can come up to and ask your questions. Otherwise, um, I'll read off some of these card questions. Um, okay. Um, here's a, a mechanism question. Um, how, how can um, tenofovir uh, be degraded by bacteria but not TAF? So great question, and we're trying to figure out the specific mechanisms of this, but what we believe it is is, so TAF is actually built to get into target cells really quickly, and this is, this is how the, um, the, the mechanism by which they actually think TAF is so much better and has a better PKPD in vivo in general. Um, but the same thing applies, so, so basically it's a race. So who, does the target cell get the TAF inside to make it pharmacologically active, or does the bacteria eat it first? So we know with tenofovir, the bacteria beats it, and the bacteria will eat the drug before it gets in that target cell. But what we think for TAF is that the TAF beats it in the target cell, and then the bacteria doesn't have a chance to actually metabolize it. So we believe that is the mechanism, but we are still sorting that out. Lots of experiments underway trying to understand this, and understand it for lots of drugs and gut bugs as well. Okay. Um, as uh, a follow-up question, someone asks, um, should we be using Descovy in women? Uh, needing PrEP rather than tenofovir. Using what? Descovy, the, the TAF. Uh. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> um, so I think that we need clinical trials to understand. I think that we have to better understand this. We have to understand what the effect of oral PrEP is, which we really don't understand yet. Um, and, and so I think based on our data, I think that there is a chance for improved efficacy with TAF, but 
again, there's other mechanisms at play too. So there are things like information and, and barrier dysfunction. So I think that we need to consider all of these things and find the best product for women. Okay. Um, there's another question related to um, indiscriminate use of antibiotics in altering uh, vaginal microbiota. Uh, microbiota. Um, are broad-spectrum antibiotics more um, harmful than narrow-spectrum antibiotics? So um, I love talking about antibiotics because, of course, I think everyone in this room could probably agree antibiotics are overused. Um, so we have shown that both broad and narrow-spectrum antibiotics given orally for GI um, causes can alter the vaginal microbiome. Um, and, and this can be a permanent change to the vaginal microbiome. So we're actually getting ready to publish these data right now. Um, but but Antibiotic use certainly can change both the gut and the vaginal microbiome, and I don't think we understand well at all um, what is happening there. And one of the interesting things that we're finding in our studies is that it, it, every single antibiotic affects every single woman very differently. And so there is no, we give this and this happens. It's every single woman's microbiome changes at, at their own different rate. So I think we just don't understand it, and I think we have to be very careful with antibiotics. Is there any kind of correlation with the level of inflammation um, and the uh, effectiveness or lack of effectiveness of antibiotics? So that's something we're trying to understand right now. So we're working very closely with Jacques Ravel, who's done a lot of metronidazole treatment in women, and, and we're trying to understand the drug metabolism, the um, inflammation relative to the microbiome communities and specific microbiota. It's something that we just don't understand, and it's something we need to understand better. So it's, it's a great question, but we don't have the answer right now, and I think it's something we really need to do. Okay. Uh, someone wonders about uh, eating yogurt, if that... Uh, um, increases the vaginal lactobacillus, and what effect would that have in health? Yeah, so the lactobacillus in the GI tract, so lactobacillus is definitely good in the GI tract, definitely good in the vagina, but they are different lactobacillus species. So the majority of lactobacillus in the GI tract that you're going to find in yogurt don't actually make the lactic acid that is so important in the vagina, and you don't tend to see vaginal lactobacillus in the gut. So it's, I think that we need a different kind of probiotic. Um, I always say that probiotics tend to be beneficial, and, and it's very rare unless there's um, a severe case of immunodeficiency that you see um, negative side effects of probiotics. Um, so, so I think that it could potentially um, you know, have beneficial effects, and even if it's decreasing inflammation, which we've seen a lot. Um, I will say that yogurt, while it's good, and I you know, on, on a non-clinical level, I will tell you, I, I, you know, I always support eating yogurt. I do not think it probably has enough bacteria to have massive effects. I think you have to go to a stronger probiotic. Um, but, but it's something that I think that we need to understand better and how these things affect the vagina for sure, and I don't think we do right now. Uh, someone asked a question about whether the studies of the gut microbiome uh, in, and neutrophils included women. So there are women in that cohort, and we actually corrected um, for sex, for um, sexual behavior, for um, race, everything in that, and, and we still see that association. So there were women included in, in that group I showed. It was not just men. It was a small amount because the, those studies were done in San Francisco. The samples are from San Francisco, Seattle, and Chicago. So, of course, the majority of our HIV-infected group would be men, but... There, there was, I think, four women in that group. Okay. Um, someone asked the question, uh, in women, uh, if there's dysbiosis, how long does it take for the vaginal uh, microbiome to recover? 
It usually doesn't. So once you have dysbiosis, it is very difficult to go back to lactobacillus dominance once dysbiosis occurs. And even if it's treated and it does go back to the, to the healthy lactobacillus dominance, it tends to eventually, within a year, um, get back to that, that dysbiosis. So that's why I think it's so important to understand this better. Okay. Um, unfortunately, I'm told that uh, we've run out of time. Uh, so for the, those of you who didn't get your questions answered, um, you can corner Dr. Clack outside and um, ask your questions. And I do thank you all for your, for your time and your questions. Thank and you. Thank you.